Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. This is episode 273. I had a conversation with Di Henwood. This is a phone conversation. Um, and I love this I love this chat because I've never met Di. Um, I once gave him a bad review many years ago and, you know, there seemed to, we've just never crossed paths and there never really seemed to be any way that I would potentially connect with him. Uh, I've got to give a shout out to our mutual friend Richard who I was talking to about it and he said, oh, I'll send Di a message, I reckon he'll talk to you. And a day later I was emailing Di and we were setting up um, to have this conversation and and we did and it was great. Now he's in Auckland of course and so on his mind was the lockdown that Auckland is living through, COVID that we're all experiencing. Uh, we recorded this conversation on the day when there were massive protests so we talk about that a bit. What I loved about this conversation was we didn't really talk about comedy that much, but it's in there. We we talk about the the new Chappelle special, which is getting negative headlines. Um, we talked about some of his early comedy influences and heroes. Um, we talked about, you know, how a lot of his jobs are on hold at the moment. Um, but we just had a really cool conversation. I mean, we're a similar age. We've got a few mutual friends, probably heaps if we really drilled down into it. Um, and we just talked about about um, life and his life and his philosophy and some of it. And I hope one day we do a part two. Maybe we'll get together and have a chat in person. But um, for now, this is me on the phone for about an hour talking to Di Henwood. You know him from uh, his stand-up comedy and, of course, from all of the panel shows that he's a part of and the game shows that he hosts. He's a TV presenter, broadcaster and a comedian. This is me chatting with Di Henwood. Hello. G'day, Di. How you doing? Hey, Simon. How are you? I'm good, mate. Good. So, um, hey, it's nice to talk to you. Because, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've never met. We have never met. I believe you know Ziggy from San Fran, eh? Yeah, yeah. I think we would probably have a few mutual friends. And I think um, possibly... Uh, I don't know. Possibly you know a few people that don't like me and or didn't, and uh, <laughs> uh, so maybe they're not friends. But um, we know, we probably know a lot of similar people, but we yes, have never. Absolutely. Now I wanted to um, to start by actually saying uh, a very belated uh, condolences about the death of your father because I I, va- I very briefly met him and knew him in a, in, a, in his theatre capacity, and uh, I didn't feel comfortable sending you a message um but i wanted to oh thanks kindly he was a he was a um wonderful man and um i'm just actually yeah pleased um he was he was dealing with sort of um a, a sort of cognitive rapid cognitive decline so i'm 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 really uh, pleased for him he didn't actually have to deal with any of this covid business mm. and, and we could sort of see him off um when um in, in proper style at the at the opera house there, he would uh, probably no doubt, given his what I knew about him and what I saw of him, um, he would have struggled with uh, the v- very vocal, annoying minority of anti-vaxxers as well. Yes, being a, <laughs> definitely being a man of um, man of science, having worked at the DSI That's right. uh, and all that, he um, and also he was very vocal against um, when he. Um, when he stood up for something, so yeah. no, he wouldn't it, have suffered fools lightly. And of course, a man of words. So I, I met him, and uh, I reckon I interviewed him in person in about two thousand and six, yeah. and um, and spent about ninety minutes with him down at down at Circa, which I guess was a, a second home for your entire family, really. Yes. 
Um, and 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 so after that, uh, it was a nice chat. And you know, he he obviously was a pro at being interviewed. And I turned in the copy for this magazine, and, and there was a photo shoot, and he looked fantastic, and it came out well. After that, he always used to just sort of give me a nod and a wave when I went into circus. So I couldn't couldn't say that I knew him, but I had such a wonderful experience. Um, meeting oh, him and I was a fan of his work and lovely. He was yeah a kind man and I, I, he was I a superb actor as well yeah superb exactly I think he was really I mean when I moved to Wellington he was probably um in a way like the first significant actor that I remembered off the TV and recognized and couldn't believe I was seeing in the flesh and in, in a performance you know going to circa and I I don't know your your mum but I sit next to her a lot at circa we, we we have ended up in the in the we must know the same person that books the seats so <laughs> she's still uh, turning up there and of course uh, you know she's as important to the development of circuit theatre as your father was maybe more so even yeah well um I think more so in the fact that mm. she's the one that organises um organises and fundraises the trust that sort of supplement a lot of the actors' income. So, um, yeah. so, so no doubt, very important, especially around um, these times where, where God, knows, um, God knows how anyone in That's <laughs> right, performance is making, yeah. um, making a dollar. I know so many people who either run venues, put shows on, doing music gigs. It's um, certainly an intriguing time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, yeah, I, so we've, we've never met, but, I, you know, I, I'm familiar with your work but in recent years I have really um, enjoyed following you on Twitter which is something I don't say to anyone ever because I think (laughs) Twitter is ghastly but um, I just I I guess I've always wanted to have a chat to you because you're you're a significant person in in New Zealand television and comedy and broadcasting but but also yeah I've just seen this uh, what I feel is uh, a shift in your overall tone and probably the same is true for me and we're we're of similar age and probably had a whole lot of similar influences and 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 so forth without knowing it uh, and I know that you have um, given up drinking and that's something that I've done uh, and I've just done that in the in the last couple of years yeah i've i've um I'm now well pretty much give or take it a few days I'm um, um, two years um, two years off the booze, and um, before that, it was sort of a, a journey of the five years before that to sort of tapering off and and deciding I didn't want it in my life. And I mean, I um I came through, I suppose, definitely um, you'd know this being of a similar age where booze was very much sort of glorified and yeah. probably still is in New Zealand and. And coming through, whether it be comedy, acting, or um, music or anything, booze was just crucial to it, and big drinking was sort of celebrated. And um, I mean, I was a I was a, a booze hound, and um, sort of uh, went hand in hand with comedy. And I mean, I I I suppose since I since I give it, I gave up the booze. Um, I definitely felt a shift because for me there was a bit of a, um, uh, uh, a path in my life where I'm um, I've always been quite a spiritual person, not not at all in terms of organised religion. I've sort yeah. of um, always felt allergic to that. But um, I travelling with Dad, I used to travel over to Japan when I was um, like thirteen. Right. Yeah. He, he would tour. Phantom of the Opera around all the towns in Japan, 
um, and not the Phantom of the Opera that everyone knows. There was actually another Phantom of the Opera written before that that right. has less singing in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was more of a stage show. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, but a very but the same plot, and um, so we would travel around there. And one of the actors, um, Helen Mulder, she um, she was a Buddhist. And um, I was always very intrigued in, um, in Buddhism, I suppose. At the time, I was very much anti-establishment. I was into hard, sort of old-school punk music, like bands like Crass, and um, there's one called MDC out of, um, out of America, and sort of your Dead Kennedys, and those type of bands. And I was sort of very anti-establishment, but something about Buddhism I found really intriguing. Mm. And, um, yeah, I went along and learned Zen meditation at a Zazen uh, monastery. And that stuck with me, even though from that point on I actually went down the full performance route and sort of the boozing and what have you and traveling around and sort of doing great gigs and meeting great people. And then it got to a point in my life where I was like, I was actually really feeling the tug of the meditation, uh, um, that there was something sort of bigger in me. And, um, and I realized that I couldn't have the booze and that. Um, so yeah, I just sort of, I gave that up. And, um, for me, like you, you talk about Twitter, I take breaks from Twitter because, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sanity breaks. Yeah. Full. I mean, like, yeah, I was just noticing because I, I stupidly weighed in on something that innocuously uh, pro-vaccination tweet without mm. sort of, you know, um, ripping into anyone. And then, of course, you get found by the, once you're on the anti-vax algorithm, um, <laughs> uh, people just start attacking you. And you- um, so you just step back and then, I, you know, I'd start, one, I'd look at their profiles and there's, you know, no one's. It's hard to tell whether they're a bot or not. Yeah, but yeah. It still affects you mentally. Of course, and you're a quotable person for two reasons. You know, like whatever you say, uh, when it's smart and of interest or challenging, but also just because of your profile and who you are, there are people out to sort of. Um, suss, you know, suss out what you're about and maybe try and snap you, right? Like more so than someone like me, I'm just an idiot on Twitter that <laughs> sh- shares the albums that I'm listening to and, and they're all like Steely Dan records so they're not cool and no one cares. But, you know, like whatever you say is being kind of watched in a way or could yes, be. And also I definitely find um, Twitter is... Um, is so there's a lot of people who are really trying to read too much into something to get a gotcha moment. Yeah, um, absolutely. And which the nature of Twitter is you can't actually um, digress and explain your point of view. Mm. And then um, sometimes I realise I, I, I sort of I, I definitely found a really nice place in Twitter sort of before I suppose all this COVID business came, came on where I was just, um, my sort of vibe, like I, it's come through in my comedy as well. Like when I was sort of boozing in a, a bit more full on, which was when I was coming through C4 TV, um, 
there was sort of us and the back of the Y guys, and I was almost playing a character of yeah who I should be. And I'm quite an introvert, and um, I had to be an extrovert, which added, added to my drinking, and then it sort of gave this bravado and um, and I was I suppose I was a bit more of uh, like ripping into things as a comic and all that, and um, then now I've found I'm very much about rather than tearing things down. I think it's important to sort of just try and rise up and help other people rise up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's easier now. It's easier to try and rise up rather than just sit there because it's so easy and it's so punishing. Just watching people tear things down. It's like. I, I feel no matter where, what, whoever was in government right now, I would feel for them mm. because it's just people just tearing things down without offering anything constructive. Like, yeah, that's right. It's just people going and kicking over someone else's sandcastle, basically. Yeah, and it's like even like like today, for people who are listening in the future, today's the day there's sort of been um, a lot of protests, mm. especially in Wellington and so forth. And I've actually spent, rather than sort of just getting online and railing against those people, I've actually spent quite a lot of time today trying to understand why they're protesting. Mm, mm. And I really struggle with it because I understand people don't like lockdown. There's a lot of financial pressures. There's a lot of health pressure going on on, on people um, in terms of suicides, in terms of undiagnosed cancers and all that sort of carry mm. on. But I don't understand what these people are going for because what? how many deaths do they want? Like, what? what is... The, everything has a trade-off. Yeah. Um, so, like, I understand the point of view of lockdown is sort of dragging its heels because we're trying not to swamp a health system that's been chronically underfunded by every government over the last sort of 40 years. Or so. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I just don't understand what they want. And they're just people who are, if, if you actually gave them the reins, I don't think they'd know what to do. No, I think it's a lot of um, the influence of obviously Donald Trump and people like Joe Rogan, this, this, this sort of attitude of, well, I might do it, I just don't want to be told to do it. And, you know, when I was waiting to... Uh, connect with you tonight I had a quick look at my phone and someone had had replied to a thing I'd shared and said don't you get it man we just don't want to be told what to do we don't want the vaccine to be compulsory and it's like it's not compulsory you know it's like it's it's a great idea if you get it like it's actually not compulsory of course we want we want people to get it and it's going to be compulsory in the sense that you're going to miss out on opportunities without it but you know the 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 Somehow it's translated in people's heads as you're taking away my freedom, man. I don't want to be to- told what to do. Yeah. And I, I struggle with it because I just think, oh, fuck, grow up. Like that's that's yeah. where the argument ends with me. I go, just just, just fucking go and do it. Well, it's, I feel people um, mistake freedom with selfishness. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. And this is very much so America. Yeah. They, you know, going... Oh, you, what do you mean? You can't tell me not that I can't carry a, a, a AR-15 rifle around Walmart. You can't tell me that. It's my right. And going, no, it's not your freedom to do that because you're freaking everyone else out. Yeah, Responsibility, yeah. Responsibility, like, 
This is, um, I was listening to uh, Ryan Holiday, actually, who's uh, he's a writer I really enjoy. Sort of, um, he, he sort of, I suppose, repackages all the teachings of the Stoics and mm-hmm. sort of translates them to the modern day. And um, he was working with someone in, um, in the States um, because they were looking at, you know how they had the Statue of Liberty? Yeah. They were looking at putting up a statue of responsibility, <laughs> which um, was to, I suppose, indicate to Americans that responsibility is just as important as liberty in society. Like you have a responsibility to help society. And I find it so strange. For me, my argument with the vaccine is it's a responsibility to society. Yeah, yeah, You've got to step up. And I find it so strange that this is the hill people are choosing to die on. Mm. Like, out of all of the... that There are so many... Like, imagine if people were putting this sort of effort into trying to change climate crisis or things like that. Like, I just find it such a weird thing of this knee-jerk reaction of that that is purely like a toddler just i don't want to be told what to do that's it and i i um have decided that i don't want to use the term anti-vax anymore so i'm just choosing to call these people pro-covid um because i think i think you know like ultimately that's what you're in the end that's what you're standing for you're saying you know because because you're denying science and so you are saying well in the end this is the option that i prefer and i what i don't i don't know if you've had this experience yet where because you've you know, and I'm. I should have really opened with this. I, I I have been thinking of everyone in Auckland because you've been in uh, wearing it for the rest of the country for so long. Um, but but uh, I don't know if you've um, in your close circle, friends and family, if you've come across any pro COVID people yet, and the conversations you have to have with them. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised um, in that. Um, you don't have to go very far. Like I don't in my in my sort of inner sanctum, mm. if you will. But you don't have to go far to um, hear. Like a best friend of mine, just um, they had to cancel their sort of uh, batch booking with their um, brother and sister um, because they were hard out anti vax yeah. um, and they just couldn't do it. Um, and I find it. I suppose my point of view is I have kids under 12 who can't get yeah, vaccinated yeah, at exactly. the moment. Yeah. So for, for adults choosing not to get vaccinated, they're putting my children at risk. So Yeah, totally. Well, this is, this is it. The pro-COVID people, and you just highlighted that with the, the batch booking, I, I, on one level, I'm just upset with the extra admin that they're creating for other people because... You know, I, I recently, a pro-COVID person has come into my life and um, now summer plans, it's like, oh, you're going to have to ring ahead and make sure these people are okay if, if they all come round. And it's like, why do I have to do that? Why do I have to ring up and say, someone in the group is um, really not keen on a shot? Are they welcome at your house? Like, I'm just frankly not going to do that. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got people who are going a step further and, they won't be around vaccinated people because they believe they're shedding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something like that. Like, 
I just, I, I, I suppose, taking it out of the COVID um, um, bubble, it really sort of scared me and depressed me, I suppose, leading into that second um, half of Trump's presidency, mm. where there was this huge pivot from away from experts, um, you know, where it really started to people putting the same weight on an opinion as an expert. Yeah. And that just really worried me because there's, there's, a, there's I, I put my trust in experts for a reason because I've, you know, I am, um, I'll freely admit, I've got a, um, I've got a really, I suppose, um, I enjoy reading scientific papers and like nutrition science and things like that. I suppose because there's actually no place more controversial than nutrition science. Mm. Um, and even trying to read a published paper that is for a more public consumption, it's really hard. Like, I can see how lay people read papers and take the wrong thing out Yeah, of pick up on the wrong thing, yeah. Um, whereas, like, people are actually trained to read information. And even when it comes down to um, COVID data and stuff like that, the way it's presented can give completely different meaning. So I, um, I, I, it really worried me, and I think it's coming out more and more um, in New Zealand. We're catching that bug off America where opinion seems to matter as much as fact. There was this incredible New Yorker cartoon, and I want to say it was a couple of years ago now, and I don't know if you know it, but I'll try and describe it. I think about it often, and it was uh, set on an aeroplane, and there's a guy standing at the back, and he's got his hand up in the air, and it just says something like, um, you know, I'm a bit sick of these uppity pilots thinking they know everything. Hands up who thinks I should fly the plane, and half the plane have got their hands up, yeah. Um, and you know, and, I, and I've butchered that. I've paraphrased it, but that was the tone of it. And I thought that is so widely applicable now, and it hasn't stopped being, you know, relevant. A lot of cartoons are of their moment, even just valid for a week or a month. The sort of political ones. This one is gaining strength in the couple of years since it was first published. And I, I know I've shared it several times, and and I've thought about it a lot. I go, that is just it, unfortunately. Yeah, well, it, um, it takes me back to when I was a kid arguing with my dad about, you know, if an elevator cable snapped and the elevator was falling, if you jumped mm. just before it hit the ground, wouldn't you be okay? Because <laughs> you'd be in the air when it hit mm. the ground. Mm. And then him explaining physics to me, but me being too young to understand physics and me just believing I was right, even though I'm wrong. <laughs> I've thought of something that you haven't thought of, Dad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then that, but then instead, it, I was a kid. He was my dad, so I sort of believed what my dad said, and I knew he was a teacher at the time. But it's like me going, "No, I'm right," because I've thought of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, um, 
it's hard. Time is sort of morphing and folding on itself and eating itself all the while. It's hard to think back to just a couple of years ago when Twitter was just an ordinary cesspool without yeah. without this. But what I was going to ask you just to, to sort of try and get off the COVID talk for a little bit is, um, and I, I mean, I don't mind if you bring it back, but um, I was thinking, you know, did you discover Twitter the way a lot of comedians do? Was it a really helpful tool for you? You could kind of workshop your routine and you could date stamp some jokes. Is that what it was first for for you? No, so Twitter for me, I joined Twitter 2000, late 2008, beginning of 2009, so relatively early on it. Mm. Um, I'd always been, I'd always been very sort of forward tech wise. Like um, I, I was very early on MySpace, and then sort of dragged all my friends to Facebook, and that became a thing. And then um, uh, uh, Twitter and um, I, I mean, I started a podcast network in 2009. We were cranking for a while there, <laughs> and I only wish I'd, I'd started six years later. Yeah. Because um, it all just got too expensive. But no, so Twitter, I, um, I got into it because I was really into tech, and um, I like, I just followed tech um, uh, journalists and tech pundits, and um, there was a website called Dig, and um, a guy called Kevin Rose, who's now sort of a venture capital type guy, but, and a sort of biohacker type dude. I, I really enjoyed him at the time. and um, So I got into it for that, and then um, I started arguing with right-wing politicians on it for <laughs> quite a while there. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> about... Um, uh, which then didn't end up to any good. I feel like um, any anyone in the even vaguely in the arts with a Twitter account has fallen down that hole for a bit, right? Oh, I said de- definitely. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely the arts against random national yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I did that, and then yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it for um, for sort of spitting out one-liners and that, I suppose. But then I um. I suppose I got in the thing of I never if I'd done a gag on Twitter I didn't want to do it on stage and then but then when I went on stage I realised no one in the audience was actually on Twitter like <laughs> the thing is I I mean I I don't know if you find the same thing but when I'm on Twitter and I've got quite like a I've sort of really collated quite a nice um, nice ecosystem there of, of people I follow yeah. It's quite easy to think everyone knows about Twitter and cares about Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, but like, you know, my um, my wife doesn't really know or care about Twitter, and my um, I mean, my mum only sees about it because she googles my name and Twitter's <laughs> the first thing that comes up. But yeah, you know, it's very easy to sort of think Twitter's massive. Yeah, yeah. And, um, then I realised that people wouldn't actually, um, people wouldn't show up to gigs from Twitter and that. And I I'd sort of um, would use it for a few gigs here and there. And then actually I it suddenly got a lot of people following me who didn't really know I was a comedian. <laughs> and wow, it's strange when people take something that's an obvious joke seriously. Yeah, I bet. Um, <laughs> and counter a joke 
with not 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 a troll, but just like a serious question. Mm. Um, so yeah, now then I sort of just pivoted to to I suppose coming off it when I need to come off it. Um, uh, just uh, using it for 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 what I like and sort of asking questions. I suppose, and um, yeah, there's a lot of lot of nice people in it, but I I don't really use it for comedy, I suppose, and I I try and stay away from comedy stuff on on social media because as a comedian, um, it's very easy to get caught up in a lot of industry threads yeah, and yeah. stuff where um, people are looking for outrage. Um, I mean, a, a good example I haven't seen the special yet, but would be Dave, Dave Chappelle. Chappelle's yeah. recent yeah. special. Yeah, where, don't um, don't rush. I mean, you'll you'll want to see it because it's uh, it's it's your industry. Um, but I wouldn't rush to see it. But at the same time, I understand why people want to want to watch it to know because of the headlines that it's got. Yeah, the thing is, I so I enjoyed his special i think it was the one before that mm. but then disliked the one before that um and i sort of i suppose i feel at some point i need to see it yeah because um i'm also very aware of people writing massive a sort of a treatise on it yes yeah um having not properly watched it and having taking lines out of context and so forth. However, hearing, um, I suppose, sort of general raps from people who I respect and have similar points of view of me is that he seems to be treading a little bit down the alley of what Rogan is as well and this sort of almost desperately trying to be cancelled. Yeah, that was that was my read on it, and I just didn't find it funny. I just thought, and I and I guess I've my relationship with his comedy specials is similar to what you described. I I've broadly been a fan of the guy. Uh, certainly a very important comic, and I certainly loved his show at the time, and and um, you know some of the comedy specials. And I feel like the Netflix ones have been uneven, but. Um, the good ones have been amazing, and he—you certainly get the feeling with him when he's pushing, when he's trying to do something. And with this, I thought oh, he's just grumpy about being told off, and he's decided no one's going to cancel him. He's going to cancel himself. Yeah, and I—he's um, someone who, like, when he's in his wheelhouse, like talking about fame, race, mm. he is on point. Yeah, and yeah. Um, he just, um, re- you know, really like can just draw some some amazing analogies in the sketches that he did during his show. I just, um, it's for me. I don't see why he would wade into the trans arena when, in any respect, he doesn't really have anything to offer it. Yeah, yeah. Um, like it's not his place just to to comment really like it's something that you know it's uh, for me as a comment you know I'll sit down and go shit I've done so many shows I need to um um what's a what's a new angle what's a new topic 
um, that's a topic for me that I would never even consider. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless I was trying to garner a lot of negative publicity, but then by the negative publicity, it seems that he has galvanised a fan base that he wouldn't necessarily like. Yeah, totally. It's 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 that thing again too of the, the the whole kind of freedom argument, isn't it? He should have the freedom to say what he wants, is is what I think some of the newfound supporters are saying. Um, so you know that they're only backing him because he's the the horse in the race that they've stumbled upon. They're not necessarily lifers that think he can do no wrong. They're just saying here's a guy who should be allowed to say what he wants because he's a professional comedian, and um, he's got a free pass because of that. And I well, don't, I don't a, quite agree with that. You, you make a good point that I also um, had is like I the the bit I struggled with with some of his um, some of his specials was a lot of the stuff just wasn't what I believe wasn't that funny. Yeah, yeah. And people like um, I was talking to uh, another comic about this who um, people like George Carlin was funny right to the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even though his actual life fell off the rails, um, yeah, yeah, totally. Louis C.K. was funny. Yeah, totally. Like, and then, um, but he he sort of got cancelled for completely different reasons. But their, their actual, when they were doing, like Louis C.K. is probably a good example of when he was doing an off-colour gag, you still got quite a shock laugh yeah, from it. totally. The, his delivery and his actual crafting of the joke was really good, whereas... I have felt a bit on on a couple of Chappelle specials just where it feels like the words are being said to elicit the the shock reaction, I, and I yeah. I struggle a bit with um I struggle a bit with the whole I suppose middle aged comics talking about cancel culture because I I don't really think cancel culture exists as much as your Joe Rogans would say it does yeah totally and you know you've got like in joe rogan you've got basically the biggest podcast platform in the world somehow um why you know what are you even worried about commenting on stuff like that it's it's automatically um punching down because of the position you're in you know as him it's it it, it it's he's completely in us like it's like he he wishes that he was cancelable but he's arguably not because he's summoned enough of an army of what does Mark Maron call them unfuckable hate nerds um <laughs> you know he's he's summoned enough of a core audience there um that they're going to have his back no matter what and so and, which is um which is what I find strange because I um I listened to quite a lot of Joe Rogan years ago before mm. his sort of Spotify yeah deal um, Deal because he's had some superb um, episodes with I. I'm very into like neuroscience and I mentioned nutritional science. Yeah. Like guests like Dr. Rhonda Patrick, she's amazing. When he's actually just letting people talk, which isn't a bit few and far between, <laughs> it's it's fine. And often when he's got someone on there who's actually a doctor. He doesn't pretend to know anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but then um, I just I just find it strange because he he has a similar tribe to what Elon Musk has of 
people who, if you say anything against them, they just attack. They don't actually go, oh, no, maybe Joe Rogan did say some inflammatory yeah i guess i guess people see them both as the the outsider or the outlier that became the alpha male or you know has these alpha instincts but is sort of seen as someone who kind of went around the side to to get to the top and i wonder if that's what appeals about them to people yeah oh yeah completely and i mean i i see it a few times um that drives um, Rogan's followers nuts is people saying Joe Rogan's just um, Gwyneth Paltrow's goop for men, um, <laughs> which is just because you know those those guys just cannot resist fighting biting back. Yeah, totally. And, and it's it's like if anyone criticizes, um, like I was uh, watching a, a sort of car detailer, she. Um, she was a car detailer. Um, she's lesbian. Not that it's relevant to this, but not relevant in any other way. And she um, was just talking about the build quality of Teslas and how the the build quality is quite low. Mm. Like the, there's a lot of um, uneven gaps between all the panels and so forth. And then people commenters. Like tr- obviously had trawled her social media, yeah, of course, to find out. You know, they found out she's a lesbian. Then, of course, that you know, which is completely that's not fighting her argument at all. No, exactly. It's embarrassing, in fact, that that can still be used by anyone as some sort of general term of abuse, isn't it? All all it shows is you're not a very smart person. You're not a you're not, and you're not a kind person. But you're not a very smart person. And it also shows she's probably right because yeah, yeah, because you can't attack the facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to you've got to character assassinate in the lowest, um, laziest way. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's 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 baffling. And I think too, with the to go back to the the Chappelle thing, you know, I've been thinking a lot. I guess I'm always thinking quite a lot about Richard Pryor. And I think, well, would you know, he's an example of someone who, you know, the best of his comedy would absolutely float today, but when he had an off night, it was pretty rough. And, you know, it's just like comedy has that thing now that it's it's in this time when everyone can comment on it and when everyone can decide that they take the supreme meaning from it. You know, Pryor got to, to learn to be himself over a decade and his off nights became part of his legend and we wouldn't allow that now. Yeah, I, like, I... um. The one thing I love about what Chappelle's doing is this idea of um, setting up these amazing gigs he was doing. For oh, yeah, yeah, flying people in like his mates in and doing the outdoor shows. Yeah, these outdoor shows with amazing musicians because mm. he sort of, um, he's got this, he's sort of earned this amazing hip-hop credibility. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's sort of... Um, and and having these gigs, but where everyone who comes just agrees to, they lock their phone away and the performance lives in that moment. And that's how people, you know, word of mouth of that show was amazing, mm. which is like it, it was with Pryor and um, earlier on, a, a big influence of mine actually was Lenny Bruce, who um, one could argue is sort of Lenny Bruce, is was sort of doing 
Oh, it's not what Chappelle's doing now, but the the idea of he, um, I suppose, sacrificed comedy for a freedom of speech point. Yeah, they were um, they were doing the um, thinking out loud on stage thing. You know the. Uh, aspects of philosophy, but also the town crier as well, right? Yeah, and that, that's the point of um, where a lot of comedy was freedom of speech mm. um, because a lot of that was actually um, time when people like Richard Pryor and um, even Chris Rock in a more modern way yeah, yeah. Um, could really like um, the voice of an angry black American man um, honestly saying his point through humour, and I believe that that actually was a way that a lot of people listened, you know? I was very... I was extremely educated about, um, I suppose, the plight of um, black American culture through Chris Rock and through Richard Pryor. Yeah, and, um, and possibly through things like, well, for me, things like the band Public Enemy as well. And there's that oh. that synergy, you know, Chuck D is, is, has that town crier philosopher thing about him, doesn't he? Oh, dude, we, um, I, so Public Enemy is my favourite group of all time. Wow. I, um, I got, my babysitter took me to the um, Fear of a Black Planet tour in the oh, wow. town hall. Yeah, yeah. Um, when Up Up Posse opened for them and <laughs> Up Up Posse had one tune. <laughs> Amazing. Um, that was that was the album for me, Fear of a Black Planet. That was the one, you know, like oh. I went back and listened to the the first two after that, but that record was the probably the first significant hip hop album for me. Oh, it was it was it, it still um I still li- will listen to that right through. Yes, yeah, um and uh, what I um so then uh, and more maybe like late, but around 2008 maybe, um, they played up in Auckland and I went along and um, a mate of mine ended up on stage. They did a freestyle comp and a mate of mine ended up on stage rapping with Chuck D. Wow. And Chuck D was really impressed and kept him up there. I knew the promoter, so I said, hey, it's my mate's birthday. Can we go backstage and meet him? So after the show, he takes us back to Chuck D's room, and Chuck D just introduces himself, then sits us down and goes into a massive lecture on um, Maori culture and how awesome it is and how um, translating it to um, Native American culture yeah. and You know, like, we're 15 minutes into it, and we were quite boozed at this stage, and we're like, oh... Hey, mate, that's awesome, bro. That, like, that, that just doesn't surprise me. Individual. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. I was, in fact, it was only about two weeks ago in a bizarre conversation, really, with my in laws who were trying to understand from um, their young grandson, my nephew, uh, and, and my son. They were trying to understand what the allure of hip hop was to, to, to kids and, and whether it was very musical. And we got onto the subject of Public Enemy and then I brought up Chuck D's autobiography and I said, look, it's it's actually one of the most um, important books I think I ever came across in my life. And next thing, my mother-in-law's like writing the title down going, can you still find this book? You know, I think I'd be interested to check it out. And I was like, well, it's got more about race in it than it's got about music. It's a completely valid book to read right now. Oh, 
I, what I always love and could never figure out was the dichotomy of Chuck D and Flavor Flav. I know, I know. Like, they are, I suppose I'm being into the Eastern spirituality <laughs> buzz. They're very, they are the perfect yin and yang. Yeah, yeah. Like, Chuck D is sober, always has been, I believe he always has been, uh, conscious, focused. And Flavor Flav was a straight up crackhead for a lot of, <laughs> for a lot of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, thing. And it wasn't until I saw them more recently. Where Flavor Flav was no clock, he was just in a straight black tracksuit, and he just came out and sort of did his business. But I love that sort of bizarre. Um, oh, totally! But you know, mix. it's that it's that great duality thing that you know your uh, father would have known very well, and you know the Shakespearean setup of the full character being sometimes very much the truth teller. Yeah, and, and and offsetting the the romantic lead or the historic figure of the play, who's the important serious one. Oh, absolutely, and I mean, I um, I if if anyone um wants to to jump into one track that sort of epitomises Chuck D, for me, it's Welcome to the Terror Dome. Oh yeah, on, um, just because he. <laughs> He, I, he. What I also love is he's up there with um, Ice T actually, and the way he pronounces every single word, like yeah, 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 so much effort into enunciation, every, yeah, yeah. But um, it's just and and I mean, I I'm at a point where with my with my son, I'm trying to understand modern hip hop. Um, yes, me too. <laughs> or sort of. Almost mumblecore or yeah, whatever yeah. it is now, um, because I suppose the 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 hip hop I grew up with was so politically charged, yeah, um, and there was so much of an angle to it um, that, and now it's sort of yeah, it's a bit, um, it's just quite strange, and I mean I'm I'm. Never one to to criticise because I realise that it's just something I don't understand. Yeah, and I think I think you don't have to understand it. The important thing is just to not deny it for them, right? Like, yeah, is the thing. Yeah, because you know, it's I, I've had the same thing with my son. He's just turned ten, and you know, Eminem was a big one for him, and that's fine. And I was okay with that, and mostly okay with that. I worry a little bit about the misogyny aspect but i think oh god um it's funny you say that mm. um, so my son got into eminem because he was all about he wanted to know who the fastest rapper was. yeah yeah and then of course eminem comes up on um rap god i think yes it is, yes song which is a phenomenally fast voice but then i so i went back and listened to his album that is more relevant to us um one of his early, yeah. early, early as albums. It is horrific. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like lyrically. Yeah, and you <laughs> and sort of you have your hand in your shudder. You sort of have your uh, you know your your heart in your mouth a little bit, and you think, well, are they are they really focusing in on that, or is is that going over their head, and are they just impressed with you know the rhyme scheme and how fast it is and the 
you know, the, the, the anger of it can be compelling in a musical sense, um, I think. And so you wonder if, like, just because, you know, when I was 10 and uh, probably 11, uh, you know, my favourite album in the world was Appetite for Destruction. And yeah. and I still like it. And you make a case for that as being every bit as misogynistic as anything by Eminem, I think. Um, and I like to think that the misogyny never rubbed off on me, but I appreciated the music for what it was. And I loved the anger of it because it had an energy about it that just spoke to me. And I watched my son really enjoy that album too. And... Yeah, there's just a, I don't know. There's a bit of a bit of a pressure on worrying sometimes about whether you you know are you being the cool dad by letting them check all the stuff out, or are you being the irresponsible dad by you know them one yeah, day dropping one of those lines somewhere at a friend's house that uh, whose parent overhears it and, and is not impressed. Yeah, I mean, I I listened to NWA when I was young. Mm. Um, I listen, I, being anti-establishment, I got really into um, Ice-T when he, I, lo- I loved Ice-T's. Oh, Body Count? Um, no, before that it was Girls Let's Get Buck Naked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those things just sound so funny to listen to now too, the, oh, the, the monotony of the drum machine. Yeah, really monotonous drum machine and really... Low yeah, quite hackneyed also, rhymes as well. Like yeah, like uh, yeah, really obvious rhymes. What's that amazing one when it goes? Uh, Put your hands up if you like if you like sex, and then he goes, "Safe sex, that is." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but like that, and then got into body count. But I never wanted to go and kill a cop. You know, <laughs> Laura Biding and I. Uh, for me. Those albums were a really positive way for me to actually get my anger out. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's and what I, that's what I'm getting at in terms of yeah, is it anger as an energy? You weren't. Hang on, you said you never wanted to kill a cop. You weren't the one that bit the cop in the arm today. Oh no, but God, I feel for that. I um, I uh, before all this lockdown stuff happened, I go my take my son to karate, and one of the dads there is a um cop who he's been in every. Your armed defender squad, your drug squad, he's sort of done all the heavy lifting. Um, and I really, you know, I, when he tells me the stuff that they deal with, I really feel for cops. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, oh, like, totally. Like, like, sure, sure, like, any, any, any um, group that has power there is going to be a bit of a shambles because people who are drawn to power often shouldn't have power. Mm, but mm. on the day-to-day, there are a lot of good cops who are just out there getting bitten and dealing with, you know, like going along to um, a domestic violence call Closely. out and they just... start getting attacked by the woman and the man. And yeah. Like, like, like uh, and just going, you're going along to an anti-lockdown protest and you get bitten, like, and the cops, like, I've, I've seen um, some of these tennis balls that were saying hang just... Yeah, there. ridiculous. Because um, what really, what, what I, I was trying to explain to someone um, who was, they were in this, they sort of weren't pro-COVID because they were vaccinated, but they're in that, that weird Venn diagram of pro-freedom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but not really understanding what freedom is. And um, they are in this Nazi Germany bus, which really annoyed. As someone who had 
uncles who like ruined their mental state going to war against the Germans yeah. and uh, against the actual Nazis. I don't think these people understand the Nazis and saying, well, we're living in a Nazi state and going, no, the fact that you can rail against verbally against the prime minister on the internet and to her face shows that you're not living in a Nazi state. Yeah, exactly. If we were, exactly. you would be swept <laughs> off the street and you'd disappear. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, like, um, uh, uh, just, uh, just that, that, that whole argument really frustrates me when people, oh, well, I'd rather be living under the Taliban. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you wouldn't. You don't understand yeah. that at all, and you wouldn't even be able to articulate that. Um, you Speaking of uh, freedoms and fighting for your freedom, what are you going to do with your newfound freedom? You get to go into shops tomorrow. Oh, uh, <laughs> almost as depressing yeah. as this anti-lockdown protest was people camping outside Sylvia I Park. I know. I was actually. I read that, and I thought... Uh, is that store going to get charged with, um, you know, breaking what you know, breaking the lockdown restrictions because they're actively um, fishing for people to line up on the promise of free stuff, which is creating you know large crowds. Yeah, it, um, it, so we at the time um, it was a beautiful sunny day here, and we we're out at um, out at the beach, um, and it was just really there was no one at the beach out at Piha. Um, and that was when I was just sort of sitting there and I, I flicked through my phone and saw that. And I was like, what a, how depressing, as I was you know, sitting in gorgeous nature, like, how depressing that there are people outside Sylvia Park right now. Mm. Like, it's sort of, that almost is um, like whether you want to go too deep into how things like pandemics start. Like with obviously the human races, we're 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 starting to push the boundaries of our existence on Earth without Earth sort of fighting back in some way yeah. through disease and stuff like that. Is going. This is just the most depressing consumerism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, we've all seen it uh, already over the last couple of years with like the queues to KFC and other takeaway places. And it's, it's, um, I just, you know, I feel for everyone that's been in lockdown for weeks on end. Um, I, I had like, like, like everyone in the country, we've had a version of it, but no one's had a version like Auckland's had. So I can't begin to imagine quite how stressful it's been in some houses in particular. But, but that's your outlet is to just go and sit in a car and queue for takeaways or to go and line up at Sylvia Park to, to buy some shit. Yeah, see, for me, for me, it's like, um, we, We've we've sort of I suppose say we've done all the shopping we needed to online. Yeah. And to me, it's like I'd rather go to the beach and have a good time rather than go to the supermarket or a shop where, like, if you look at the vectors of transmission, I'd rather get my groceries delivered because the supermarket seemed to be a spot where it's yeah, quite, exactly yeah yeah where yeah. you're more likely so no doubt an indoor mall is gonna be the same i mean i i like i i know i i think there's 
I know lots of people who I suppose fall into um, middle class, vaccinated, but are starting to flaunt the rules, like having having other yeah. double vaxxed families inside and over and all that sort of carry on, which I um, I struggle with because I have to explain it to my kids why their mates are having sleepovers, yet yeah, we're not yeah. allowing sleepovers because we're just sticking to the rules and so forth. So, and, and we sit here in other cities and go, oh, that's very bougie and very Auckland, but there'd be people in any city in the country doing it if, it, if, if other cities had had lockdown as long. Like, Yeah, and when we're, we're now coming up on three months, yeah, we're like 10 days away from it being three months, and um, we've been blessed that our um, our kids haven't um, suffered anxieties and things around that. They've actually thrived yeah. quite a bit, to be honest. So, But I do know people whose kids are quite scared now to go out. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it's a, yeah, it becomes an insular world. And this is where I worry um, that the messaging is going to have to change a bit because they've had to use the sort of fire and brimstone mm. to, to keep everything under control. But also, I'm not afraid of COVID. I've been vaccinated. I sort of, I look after myself as well as I can. Mm. I, know that, I know that I'm going to come into contact with it at some stage, whether it be me or a family member. Yeah. Um, but you can't live in fear of it because if you're vaccinated or young, this you seem to, aside from a, few, a, a percentage, get through it. Yes, okay. yeah, yeah, you'll survive. It like, seems to really hurt you if you're not vaccinated or so forth. Yeah. So you can't live in fear. So there's sort of, I suppose, like what happened in Singapore was the hospitals got overrun because everyone thought they needed to go to hospital if they got COVID, whereas the messaging sort of wasn't out yeah. there that, no, actually... Unless it's really bad, so so yeah, I, find, I think that that's going to have to be a pivot at some point. Yeah, to, yeah, to and sort of I suppose take the fear out of it a bit. We we were going to talk a week ago, and you you messaged me and said you know a work a work commitment had come up, and you had to sort of take it, of course, which <laughs> yeah. which which is understandable regardless, and happens to me all the time. I'm I'm forever grateful that people give me their time to do this, um, but. But how has it been for you with the, you know, people will, people will listen to this and go, oh, well, that guy doesn't really need to work anyway, will be their um, assumption. But but um, money aside, um, how has it been for you not being able to do what you do? Because as introverted as you might um, suggest that you are, most people in the country know you as a guy behind a microphone, a guy who fronts TV shows. What's it been like to not be working? Well, it's... I suppose, like the thing is, uh, I find it really interesting when I when I bump into people because um, I my sort of I suppose rise to fame in terms of TV correlated really closely with the wages in TV going down <laughs> quite a lot <laughs> because of the nature of streaming and so forth and mm. the ad dollars being less. So I still need to work a lot. To, of course, to, of course. To provide. Yeah. And the thing is, the way my year had weirdly worked out, I had 70% of my workbook between August and December. <laughs> and that, 
sort of has just started to fall away. We've luckily been able to get back sort of filming with seven days. I've been um, been doing a few appearances via Zoom, which has been really interesting trying to do stand up over Zoom. Yeah. Um, and been doing bits and bobs. I mean, I've been lucky that that I've always been someone who's been quite prudent with money in terms of investments and that sort of thing. So I sort of had a bit of a bit of a backstop. Um, and it's been really hard. Like yeah. also, I, I'm I sort of am an introvert, but I still love performing. And I, I suppose stand up comedy is great for an introvert because it's just you on stage and no one's talking to you. Like I um I I really miss live gigs. Um we were about to do Dancing with the Stars, that fell that's over. Right, yeah. Um that's like a show. There's present presenting shows which I just um it's a skill set that I have and I really um really love doing it. I I suppose I just love doing different stuff. So now it was like um yeah, I just got a um just got a call up last week to to do some comment commentating and and background on on um, the Melbourne Cup. I've started mm. doing some of the alternative commentary collective stuff, and now I um I'm just sort of grabbing stuff when it's available, and because um, who knows? I mean, naturally, naturally, from Christmas on is a bit of a dead time in performance over over January. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm lucky to have a have a couple of things in the in the pipeline for next year. So uh, I know I've got some work coming up, but it has been really hard. And I think uh, I have spoken to a lot of people who are in lockdown, but they work for a company and they're just getting their normal wage and working from home and. It's very easy for them to talk about how the government's pissing all this money away, you know, giving mm. giving people this wage subsidy to buy a bloody PlayStation with and all that. And they they don't realise like like for, for me that wage subsidy has been so helpful. Yeah, of course. And um actually I would like to see them survive on six hundred bucks a week with two kids. <laughs> you know, like yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, like no, ain't no one buying a PlayStation <laughs> with that. And um, it, yeah, it's very, I think it's very easy for people to to throw those comments out and not realise how much these subsidies are actually helping. And then don't get me started on Destiny Church taking um one hundred and fifty thousand of it. I know it's uh, <laughs> it's um. I mean, your response there of laughing is is the only one that we can have in a way, like because it's it's just too instantly enraging. Hey, yeah, um, I, um, I, I, to be honest, find at points like this where I I feel that the whole society of this this thing we've built up around, um, even though we're sort of I suppose a social a social capitalist, yeah, yeah, nation. That um, that these entities don't pay tax and things like that are set up. And you know, when I look at the tax I pay and how the because I've always been, I suppose I've always been uh, having a mum as a judge. Yeah, I've yeah, yeah. Very um, yeah. Very straight <laughs> up and down around tax and all that. So it just it does my head in that these these people don't pay tax and then are quite happy to 
take this money but run um, run these protests. And I guarantee both of the Tamakis are vaccinated. Oh, totally. Yeah, I, 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 whenever I see their faces, which is as little as possible, but when you do catch them on a news grab or something, that's what pops into my mind is you, you are working on such a manipulative level that you've gone and vaccinated yourself so that you can stir this imaginary pot um, because it because it works for you. It works for your evil brand. Um, you yeah, were well you I were did, well prepared in life because you didn't just have a judge as a mother. You had a father that I guess brought in a regular income. Yes, <laughs> it prepared you well to 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 the life that you lead. Just jumping back to the mm. Timikis, though, something that they didn't um, didn't pick up on the news that I thought they should have. When he drove away from the police station in his Tesla, his license plate is six six six. Wow, I didn't see that. It's not a personalised plate. It's like DCB six six six. That's amazing. But the fact that he has triple six on his license plate should not go unnoticed. No, see now you're doing alternative commentary for the news. Yeah. Which is how, how in the zone you are for this new role. Hey, um, I need to wrap this up because, Absolutely. because it's a, a phone call and you've got a, you've got a, a family to, to, if not attend to, 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 to have a break from if they're sleeping. Yeah. Um, I, um, have loved this conversation. I love the time that you've given me and I wonder maybe one day we can do this again and maybe in person we could actually meet. Um, because it's it's been a great chat and it's easily been the longest I've ever talked to someone that I've given a negative review to. Oh, I know. I was actually um, I was thinking back. Um, that was a that was an appalling review, but you've got to get bad reviews. Um, well, it was probably it was probably an appallingly written review too. Is the thing like a lot of the bad reviews are because they are spat out with. Um, you know, sometimes they're a lot of fun to write and you really mean them, and then sometimes they're spat out because you've got nothing else to say. And that's in no way me apologising for it, and you know that. But I think I'm I'm nowhere near as proud of the slamming reviews as probably a lot of people think I am. It's just part of that wave you get caught up in. And no, it- I mean, people, we all... We all grow and we yeah. move on. And, like, well, I mean, I've... Um I have had my my fair share of um, bad reviews, and you know I can disagree with bits and bobs in them. But then at the end of the day, what I do is is just what I do. Like um, I don't. Uh, um, I I remember actually my dad saying that um, if you're going to listen to the good reviews, you've got to listen to the bad. Yeah, reviews. exactly. So exactly. You, you've just got to. Um, Sort of, you 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 can't you can't sort of pump your tyres up too much with the good ones, and you shouldn't deflate yourself with the bad ones. But and it, there's so many. Um, I think what what a lot of performers need to remember with the reviews, there is, as you'd know, there's so many other factors beyond just the performer that, a, that goes into into the review. And and you could argue that. Um, I have often argued that the review is not for the actual performer at all. Uh, which is a, an easy thing for me to say because I'm not the performer. But it's you know, so true. Though. It's so true. It's the, the the performer is the last person that that the reviewers for. And um, it's funny when you were talking when we when we were talking about Twitter earlier, and you sort of referenced the idea of you know you can get a bad rap and then you can be stuck with it. And I was thinking, you know, it's it's 
it's funny with things like that, like um, with Twitter. I mean, I, I don't reckon I've sincerely given a particularly bad re- review to anything in years. And I go out of my way now because reviewing is just a part-time hobby thing, which it, it really it always was. It was obviously not a, a lucrative earner or ever a full-time gig for me. But um, I go out of my way to just try and highlight things I'm interested in. And, you know, I, I'll totally own this. I don't mind. But it's amazing the number of people who will just dash off their comment go well who cares what you think you only you know you just hate everything and yeah. it's like well that's my you know i got to own that and I do but it's like yeah you, it takes a while to shake a reputation no exactly and um, and that's why I mean I was um, I was keen to have a chat because like we, we've got Richard who's a mutual friend yeah. and um, I know um, my mate um, Ziggy has, has, has had kind words to say so I mean people People grow, and this is, I mean, I suppose a good point to to leave it on would be the the thing of people people do grow, and if you can tie it into that cancel culture thing of it, this is why I don't think cancel culture is a thing because I think if people do make mistakes and they honestly own up to them, or they just honestly make a point of of changing or pivoting, then then just let them. People can change, man. Yeah, yeah. I, li- I like that we talk. We didn't really talk about comedy, but we absolutely did. Um, yeah. So, so maybe we can do that another time. But um, I-, I love this conversation, and good luck to you and your family for the rest of whatever is in store for Auckland. Um, and and um, you know, let's have a chat in person one day. Oh, wonderful! Hey, thanks, Simon. This is a journey.